It's the first Monday of the month, and we are responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 383. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders are born, they're made, and this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, the first Monday of every month, we tackle questions that have come in from you, our listening community. And if you would like to submit a question to be considered for a future Q&A show, you can go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback in order to do that. I am joined this month, as I am most months, by my best friend, Bonnie Stahoviak. Hello, Bonnie. Hello, Dave. It's great to be back and answering these fruitful questions. I am always so excited to see what has come in. I apologize in advance to many of you as I go through my inbox and look over the last couple of months. There are many questions that we are not getting to. We'll we'll do our best to see if we can get to them in the future. We always try to pick questions that are going to be most helpful to as many as possible. And hopefully, we can share some ideas that will get you thinking about new ways to process some of the situations that many of you are dealing with. So with that, let's jump right in here from Andrew, a longtime listener of the show. Andrew wrote in and said, do you have any episodes where you talk about how to deal with change? Most of what I see in the world of advice is how to manage change from a management perspective. What about on implementing change and dealing with it on a personal level? Dave, I'll leave it to you to let... Andrew, know if there are specific episodes that you want to recommend, but I feel like we've talked about this so much and I was chuckling to myself because my go-to anytime we start talking about change is a wonderful author who's really spent his entire career looking at change, and that is William Bridges. And there would be two books that I would recommend and have recommended many times on the show and will continue to recommend many times on the show. And one of them really starts with your question about how to deal with transitions on a personal level. It's really his pinnacle work. The book is called Transitions. And it begins by describing how most of us think about change as the beginning. But when in fact, every change begins with an ending And then it doesn't go right into a beginning. What it does is it goes through a period of what Bridges calls the neutral zone. Sadly, as human beings, flawed as we are, our mind wants to create status quo. And so even if it's a great change, we sometimes as humans will resist wonderful changes just because we're sort of designed and built and and conditioned and socialized for status quo. And so the neutral zone can be really hard because all those things are gone. I'm not in the new, new, but I'm not in the old, old, and I'm in this in-between part. And it's hard because I feel vulnerable. I feel afraid, again, even if it's a wonderful change. And so not really being accustomed to even with the good change can sometimes cause these feelings of ambiguity and you know our, our minds kind of get messed with. So the neutral zone is a really fascinating thing that I think about often. The neutral zone is not all bad though, because one of the other things that happens in the neutral zone is just these incredible sparks of creativity that are unlike any that I've ever experienced in any other season of change. So it can be wonderful. But then I want to go back to your question about how do we do this as leaders, because I've been talking about on a personal level. Bridges 
second book, I believe it was his second book in terms of the order in which he wrote them, is called Leading Transitions. And so you got the first book that really walks you through these all changes begin with the ending and then the neutral zone and the beginning. And then the leading book, Leading Transitions, has a lot. It's They're both very short and very easy to digest. And, and the, the Leading Transitions one has wonderful prescriptions around things that we can do as leaders to lead through those neutral zones collectively. And another big thing I take away from that book is the reminder to celebrate the small wins. So we may not have you know, the annual sales goals to look at or some metrics that are on a longer term basis, what are those small things that we can do to mark achievements that are being made and to really acknowledge the people that are working through these difficult seasons of transition? I'm so glad you mentioned the work of William Bridges. One of my favorite distinctions that he makes is the distinction between change and transition. Change is the external thing that happens. Transition is our processing of it. So change often can be very quick. Transition may take a long time. Andrew, your question really reminds me of how, from a leadership standpoint, how often we miss this as leaders. Because when we are announcing a change, a reorganization, a new system that's going to be used, almost always we have had days, weeks, sometimes months to process it ourselves. We've been through not only the change, but we've been through the transition. And we are making an announcement to people sometimes about how we're going to now change as an organization. And they are getting that news for the very first time. And it's going to take them time to transition as you are going through right now, Andrew. And I say that because one is for us all to remember that when we are announcing changes or bringing change to an organization, that people need time to transition, regardless of what that is, sometimes a little bit of time, sometimes a lot of time. And I mention this because our society tells us that we need to move quickly through that as fast as possible. We hear that message a lot, if not that explicitly, that you need to buck up and move on and figure things out. And this whole conversation reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. I know it's one of your favorites too, Bonnie, from Anne Lamont in her book, Operating Instructions. And I'll just read what she wrote. She says, I have these secret pangs of shame about being single, like I wasn't good enough to get a husband. Rita reminded me of something I told her once about the five rules of the world as arrived to by this Catholic priest named Tom Weston. The first rule, he says, is that you must not have anything wrong with you or anything different. The second one is that if you do have something wrong with you, you must get over it as soon as possible. The third rule is that if you can't get over it, you must pretend that you have. The fourth rule is that if you can't pretend you have, you shouldn't show up. You should stay home because it's hard for everyone else to have you around. And the fifth rule is that if you're going to insist on showing up, you should at least have the decency to feel ashamed. So Rita and I decided that the most subversive, revolutionary thing I could do was show up for my life and not be ashamed. That's from Anne Lamont, Operating Instructions. Thank you so much for the question, and we hope we gave you some food for thought. And this next question is from Katie. I've been at my company a while. However, in the past year, I've seen many people leave the company, and a lot of the people leaving are those who have been with the company for many years. 
I'm very concerned about this, and I'd love to help my company find solutions to this problem. A lack of appreciation and recognition seems to be the issue for most people. Additionally, I've come up with several ways to show appreciation and recognition to the people I lead, and I have seen very positive results. I realize that there must be a problem with the way I'm communicating my concerns since I'm not getting any responses. I think that if I can back up my concerns with facts and evidence that my suggestions will work, I have a better chance of my concerns being taken seriously. However, I'm struggling to find out how much information I need to pull together, how I need to present it, and with whom I should present the information. Do you have any suggestions on how I can tackle this situation? Katie, thank you so much for the question. The thing that I noticed when I received your email is how much the word I is in your message. And I say that because speaking about change and transition, as we were talking with an Andrew's question, is whenever there's a organization involved, in this case there is, and there's a transition that's going to need to happen that involves a lot of people, it is very unlikely that any individual in the organization, even if they're the person who's in charge of the organization, is going to inspire that change alone. And in your case, I'm guessing from the context of your question that you're not leading the entire organization, that there's going to be some shift for you of thinking about this, I'm assuming from the language in your question, of thinking about this as a problem you solve to a problem that we solve. And so the starting point would be who else in the organization, Katie, feels strongly like you do about seeing this transition happen and bringing in more of the recognition into the organization. And if there are the people who are that same heart as you do, then those are the people to start with to begin those conversations and to put together what John Cotter would call a a guiding coalition, a group of people that can begin to take on this important work of helping to empower the organization and bring recognition in. And if those people are not there, then I think that that is also an indicator to you of, are you on the right path? Is this the right move for the organization? Or maybe is the organization not ready for this? I have seen a lot of people over the years spend a lot of time and effort on something they felt really passionately about, but for whatever reason, the organization was not ready for, or a lot of people in the organization weren't ready for. And have gotten very frustrated and disenchanted with the organization because they pushed something that the organization wasn't ready for. Now, I don't know. I'm making some assumptions from your question, but that would be the place I'd start as far as you're thinking of starting to have some of those conversations and figure that out. And then, you know, once you have a few people who are passionate about that, of then getting those folks together and going to talk to the people that you need to have as part of that coalition to support you. It's always important, I think, in every situation to have someone involved from senior leadership or the owner or whoever the right person is involved in that as well. So they bring credibility and support and visibility to that initiative. If you're looking for a framework for that, John Cotter's book, Leading Change, or the companion book, Our Iceberg is Melting, is a wonderful place to start as far as how to lead change within an organization. His model is time-tested. He's been on the show before. I'll put a link to his episode in our notes as well. But that would be certainly a starting point for you of thinking through that process. Now, if you decide that you're able to gather that interest, if there's interest in the organization and moving forward, 
Another set of resources that might be helpful for you is a long time ago on episode 79 and 80, we did a two-episode series on why an organization would want to have a recognition program, a formal recognition program, and how do you actually implement it? What are some of the key steps in doing that? Uh, Michelle Smith was my guest on that episode. There is an entire industry, that recognition industry, that teaches organizations how to do this well. And Michelle's a leader in that industry. So I'll put a link to that in the notes as well. So if you do decide that that's the way to go, there will be some good resources for you on how to do that. I think it's important to distinguish between things that are related to process and things that are related to culture. And you've talked a little bit about the process level. I mean, not not too terribly specifically, but to implement recognition programs before really looking at the root of it at the cultural level, you will find that you're kind of putting a decoration on something that still may very well be broken. But the other thing I'd like to suggest to you that is perhaps that you haven't even gotten yet to the root yourself, I so very rarely ever see that the issue is truly about appreciation and recognition. One of the books I really love on the topic of motivation, because he really researched it such in depth, but makes it so accessible, is the book by Daniel Pink, Drive. And he looks at three factors involved in motivation, and none of them are recognition and appreciation. But what often is manifesting itself as a lack of appreciation and recognition is that people don't find meaning and significance in the work that they do. And so the recognition is that false belief that like that will fix it. But if I don't even believe that what I do makes any kind of difference in this world, most people don't want to do jobs like that. If they can't see how what they do connects to something that makes any kind of a difference, And to be able to have in your company a culture that doesn't celebrate necessarily the individual achievements, but the collective capacity that these individuals have to make a difference in this world, if your company cannot do that because there's no story you could tell that could possibly mean that, then I don't think you should work there and I don't think anyone else should either, right? I mean, like, if we can't do that, like, it's really hard to go to work every day and to find it meaningless. Katie, thank you so much for your question. I hope it's uh, helpful and look forward to hearing from you on what was useful to you. Our next question is from Thomas. Thomas wrote in and said, I accepted an offer to join a new company as director of payroll and HR information systems. I'm looking for guidance on starting at a new company and leading two separate but connected departments. Can you recommend a few episodes I should listen to? I'm a casual listener and did a quick search, but there were too many good episodes to choose from. Thanks, Thomas. That's kind of you. I am mid-career, and this is a big promotion for me, so I'm dealing with some doubts. Uh, So I'd appreciate any guidance you could provide. Well, Thomas, congratulations. And I'm going to pass this question to Bonnie first because, Bonnie, about the time you and I met, in fact, you had taken over an executive role where there were, if I'm recalling, there were two departments that came together. And so you've had some experience in your own career of doing this. Yes. One of the things I want to say first, Thomas, is how glad I am you're asking this question because a lot of people don't. They treat the coming together of two disconnected yet connected departments. (laughs) I, I knew exactly what you meant when you said that. They treat them the same as if they all had jobs that were very well aligned toward a single common mission function. And I'm glad you're asking the question because I don't want you to treat them the same. One of the things to do a little bit of reading and thought toward is around the distinctions between teams and working groups. 
we act like everything we ever lead as leaders, they're all teams. And so we get together and have everybody come to regular meetings and Dave report out what you're doing and Bonnie report out what you're doing and everything like that without really thinking about what information will be essential to the people and and in what form should that information be shared. Is it a meeting? Because if Dave can just type up a quick paragraph, a few bullets of what's going on on his team, and I can do the same, and we're able to share that out in writing, we really should only be coming together when we need to collaborate and solve problems together. So think about those team meetings, the purpose of them as solely being bringing these people together when they need to problem solve, when we need to have healthy conflict in the sense of we've got some decisions to make. And so we should express differing viewpoints on them and gather evidence and analyze that evidence together, but not come together to inform. But information is essential. I do need to know what Dave's got going on in his group. (laughs) I, I do, as a leader in this organization, I do need to know that information. It's just how will I take that information in and what will I need to do with it? So the distinction between a team that is truly problem solving, making decisions, there is true dependency on one another to accomplish the goals that are collective. And then the working groups, which is just more, yeah, there are some interdependencies and there is definitely knowledge that needs to be shared, but not as tight knit and not as dependency oriented as a team is. So that's just one thing, but I know Dave's got a few actual episodes to recommend to you as well. Yeah, indeed. I love what you said, Bonnie. And it actually reminded me of another episode. So first of all, Thomas, if you go into your free membership dashboard on the website at coachingforleaders.com slash podcast, one of the drop downs there is for new leaders. Now, I know you're not a quote unquote new leaders and you've never led before, but you're going into a new situation. And those episodes are are tagged specifically for folks like you who are going into new situations or maybe leading for the first time, because there's a lot there that will help. And here are four of the episodes you'll find there. One of them relates to what Bonnie just said, episode 138, the four unique types of teams. There are very, very different kinds of teams, and you are leading a different kind of team than you may traditionally lead in an organization. Susan Gerke was my guest on that episode. That would be a really valuable one to think about going into the situation where you are leading two different kinds of departments and thinking about how you might strategize that a bit differently. Also from Susan Gerke is episode 192, How to Create Team Guidelines. In that episode, we walk through when you are starting to work with a new team, how do you set up the guidelines as a organization so you all have the same operating agreements on how you're working and how you're structuring things? This would be valuable for anyone running a team, but particularly if you are taking over a new team or there's been a transition recently, that's a very helpful episode to you. I'm also thinking about the episode with John Pinheiro, who was episode 349. John talked about his journeys. One of our listeners uh, talked about his journey in taking over a new team and getting a big promotion as you have, and just what he utilized as far as frameworks in order to help his organization to be successful right off the bat. And he's had a tremendous amount of success in that transition. So episode 349 would be helpful. And then the other one that really I started thinking about in the context of your question, Russ Laraway was on the show earlier this year and talked about having 
great career conversations with the people on your team. And I suspect, as part of this transition, that there are folks that are entering your sphere of professional influence and leadership influence that you haven't worked with directly before. And I love the model that Russ shared on episode 370 of if you are wanting to really understand more about the career journeys of the people that are on your team, and also, more importantly, how you can support them going forward. That's a really, really helpful model to do that. So I'll put all those links in the notes for you, Thomas, and let us know what you find helpful. Congratulations. This next question is from Lovelina. I'm starting a support group for women to teach and remind each other of the skills that are needed to succeed, inspire, and lead in the workplace. I was wondering if you can recommend an article on executive presence to use as a conversation starter. I'm looking for an article to share with my group for our first meeting. Lovelina, thanks for the question. Thank you for starting a group to do this. Good for you. And I'll do you one better. So I actually have a few articles to recommend. And one of the things I would suggest you do, and anyone else who's looking for this resource, is if you go into your membership dashboard on the website, there is a button there that says Dave's Library. If you click on that button, you're going to see a list of everything I've ever cataloged. Many of you who've been following the show for a while know that I've been sending for years now weekly leadership guides every Wednesday to many of you. And it always includes the best articles I found, the podcasts, the videos out there from experts that I think will be really helpful to you. I catalog all of that. In addition, there's a ton that I catalog that never makes it to the weekly leadership guide. And there are literally thousands of articles, references, videos that are in that online library that are searchable by topic. And one of the topics is executive presence. So if you go in there under Dave's library, Lovelina, and click on the executive presence topic, you're going to find four or five articles that'll be really useful to you in addition to a few past. One of the problems I often ran into when I was leading a team and doing regular staff meetings is I always wanted to bring in, like you're doing, an article to start a conversation. And I could never find the right article at the right time. It was like when I was prepping the staff meeting, I was like, oh, I I thought I had that article three weeks ago, or I saw something six months ago. So I've done all the work for you of cataloging all that. So anytime you're looking for an article, that's a really good place to start because there's a ton in there. So have at it. And if I can help further, drop me a line and let me know. In general, when I hear the phrase executive presence, I can sometimes start to bristle a little bit, not in your case, but in other people's cases. And the reason why I can start to bristle a little bit is because sometimes it can be code for be more masculine. And since specifically you are gathering a group of women leaders together, I would be very careful. You think the aspiration is executive presence, but really if we were to unpack that a little bit more... For some women leaders, it's really to eradicate the femininity within you and adopt more of masculinity. Now, if we look at history, we know that women used to not work in anywhere near the numbers that they work today. Today, it is quite normal. But before that was a normal thing for us in our society, the way in which the socialization of a workplace was formed was through masculine qualities. And then even when women went into the workplace, the the first start would tend to be in more secretarial type of roles. I mean, I'm thinking of that show Mad Men, where you like it's clearly the women are treated differently there. Clearly, they're not in 
respected in the same capacity in the ways in which men are. So I do bristle a little bit. I think back to much of the work I have read from Deborah Tannen. She's a linguist. And so she'll go in and look at the ways in which men and women communicate differently in the workplace. And a classic one that always comes to my mind, because it's an area I have failed time and time at again. And that is that we think about little boys and when they're on the playground and they get in a little tussle and they'll wrestle with each other and somebody hits somebody else. And then literally at the next recess, that was the morning recess. In the afternoon recess, those same boys are back breast of friends. Nothing ever happened. And women (laughs) will be like in sixth grade getting a little tussle and they're 45 years old and they can tell you exactly what the girl's name was on the playground (laughs) and exactly how this whole thing went down and how they never spoke to each other again. So that's just one example of many of which Deborah Tannen describes. The reason I bring that up for myself as a failure is to recognize is, oh, wow, when there are arguments, when there's conflict in the workplace, that is sometimes just how people get their ideas across. And I don't have to feel like that person has betrayed me in some way. And I don't have to feel like that is something that's going to continue on for years and years after that particular interaction. So I would be very careful about making sure you leave room for dialogue of, are we attempting to adopt a costume (laughs) that actually will not fit us very well, that will not fit our own sense of identity and what we bring into the workplace. That being said... (laughs) I said it makes me bristle. It doesn't mean I'm not also intrigued by the topic. So Tom Henschel, who has been on Dave's podcast many times, is a man I admire to the moon and back. He had a series of episodes on his podcast about executive presence that completely captivated me and challenged me and helped me grow as a leader. And so I think definitely, I mean, it's not like you shouldn't ever read an article about it or ever listen to a podcast about it. I I just also hope you unpack the gender things that are there. And so um, that would be a resource I feel very comfortable suggesting to you. Another resource on a whole different vein would be the writing and the speaking that Brene Brown has done. She talks quite a bit about vulnerability and authenticity. And to me, that is one of the great gifts that we as women can help to model for men to be able to adopt more of in the workplace. And by the way, I'm making generalizations. Dave is one of the most authentic, vulnerable people I've ever met in my life. So it's not as if men don't have the capacity I'm more speaking of the sociological forces that might cause someone to stuff some of that stuff down deep inside them and not feel like they can bring their whole selves into a workplace. So I do really like her work around that. But I think we as women should be thinking about these issues of identity and making sure that we aren't holding back some of the capacity that we have to offer in a workplace. This is why I'm so glad you're here every month, Bonnie. You know, I, I mean, I miss the connection of thinking like executive presence and thinking about it as a masculine trait. And so I'm so glad you mentioned that. And, it it uh, can be, but it, I mean, it isn't always, not the way Tom said it on his podcast, but it certainly can be. It can be code for that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I think it, it really calls us to adopt the skills. Uh, I forget where we were talking about it recently, but thinking about our kids. The podcast, I Oh, yeah. We had a pod, we should put a link to that podcast episode, which I'm blanking on the name of at the moment, but 
let's be whole people. Let's not have men just take on the the male masculine traits and set aside the feminine traits. And let's not have women only have the female traits and set aside the masculine traits as our society has often told us to do. And I think we're seeing more movement to that, and certainly in the North American business culture. Uh, but there's a ways to go. And this is a topic that's come up many times on the show. And we have Lois Frankel coming on the show in a couple of weeks. And the topic of that show is unconscious mistakes women make to sabotage their careers. And we're going to talk about this a lot. So for those of you, this is something you'd like to hear more about. We are going to get into more depth on this too. So Lovelina, that's probably more than you ever wanted <laughs> from us on this topic. She's like, I just wanted an article. I just, just wanted one. an article. Just an article. <laughs> that's all I asked for. I didn't want podcasts. I didn't want your thing. I don't want any of this. <laughs> awesome. All right. Let's see if we can tackle one more here. Question came in from Paul as well. Paul said, I lead a group of district level salaried managers who lead a team of 100% commission only sales consultants. And I'm wondering if you have ever done or can do a lot of requests for episodes this time. Have you ever done an episode on managing a team of commission only salespeople? I'm unsure if you've ever experienced managing this group of folks, but it's certainly night and day versus managing hourly or salaried individuals. It certainly takes talent. Bonnie, what do you think about this? Thank you so much for the question, Paul. One of the things that I want to point out is you talked about that you are leading salaried managers who lead these individuals. And one of the biggest weaknesses that I see is salaried managers who try to lead commission-only people as if they were hourly and completely not talented individuals who have a great capacity to grow sales in authentic and relational ways. And you didn't say a lot about the type of sales that are done here, but I just so often see this where it's You've got someone who was really good at sales. They had their own system for how they did it, and they saw it as a numbers game. And then they err on the side of micromanagement and trying to have that same numbers game cascade across an organization, whether or not it's the appropriate sales model for a given type of sales that you're trying to do. So I'm glad that you're asking the question. And the first thing I would want to do is get lots of training around those salaried managers to ensure that yes, we have metrics, but that the metrics are not so abundant such as to become robotic and to take away that the creativity that many times those full commission people can have in their roles. Dave has been a part of many times where someone sees an opportunity and it requires a different kind of a sales approach, a different sales model but we try to pull people back and say, oh, no, this is the way we do things because this is what I did back in the 60s you know, when I first started selling. And that person's never really had a lot of leadership training. They've never had a lot of ability to look at different sales models and map to whether or not they're appropriate for a given situation. So that's one thing I would say. Because you said it was harder to manage commission-only people. And in my mind, if you have the right people in those seats, it's actually bazillions of times easier. Because I don't have to worry, assuming if Dave is the right person, the selection process went well, and he's been properly trained, he knows our product, he understands our company, then he's got built-in motivation to want to succeed, I don't have to be as creative as a leader as I do in other instances to try to have that. Now, it does it is helpful, yes, to have some metrics because sometimes people get off, you know, their where they are 
and, and where they need to be. So I need to have some metrics, but just not getting overloaded on that to try to treat people like they're, you know, robots in a sales force. I just, that's that kind of sales is going away. And, and we're needing to rethink our sales models in order to succeed in today's marketplace. Paul, the last time I received a salaried paycheck was 2002. Ever since then, I have been working on either commission or projects, uh, you know, paid for projects. That has been my career since then. And so I've both been this person and I have managed these folks that you're speaking of. And the thing that I uh, keep coming back to is what Simon Sinek said when he was on the show a few years ago of leaders aren't responsible for the numbers. Leaders are responsible for the people responsible for the numbers. And both in my own experience of trying different things and watching other sales managers be effective and not effective over the years, the thing that I've seen work so well for so many is showing up as a coach and being very coach-like of how can I serve you as a salesperson to be more effective in the role you have and how can I help support you in practicing and doing observations and coming along with to customer meetings and being a true resource and a servant leader, as we've talked about many times. And when I, I have found that not only when the actions are there for sales managers to do that, but also that the mindset is there of how can I do whatever I can do to help these folks to be as successful as possible in their roles, that that often leads to a lot of success. And to Bonnie's point, there are some very natural incentives that are built into a commission-only system. And I would also challenge you and anyone else who's leading folks who are commission only. The assumption often is that salespeople are only motivated by the money or the results. And it is true that that is a metric that a lot of salespeople watch. It is also, in my experience, a mistake in almost every situation to assume that that's the only motivator or that that's the, even the primary motivator. Most of the people I've worked with in my career making more money was not the thing that launched them out of bed in the morning. It was a lot of things. That was one piece, but it was, what am I doing in the world? Do I get to use my talents? The things that Bonnie was talking about in Daniel Pink's work drive a bit ago of the natural autonomy, uh, mastery, and purpose that Pink talks about in his research. Those are the things that really are the difference makers. Now, if you ask salespeople what motivates them, a lot of them will say the money because they don't necessarily know what else to say. But when you actually look at behaviors, you'll find that those key motivators make such a big difference. One other thing that I found helpful over the years too, Paul, of thinking about working with salespeople is the distinction was made to me years ago that often there are two types of salespeople. There are the hunters and there are the farmers. The hunters are the people who go out and they are always looking and excited about finding new business. They're the ones who are making the phone calls and sending the emails and love going and knocking on doors. And then there are the salespeople that tend to be more of the farmers, the people that develop a relationship with a customer or customers and build that relationship over years and rely on repeat business and are very, very talented at doing that. And it's been my experience that salespeople tend to have a preference and do better at one of those, generally not both. And so one thing to think of it, if there's the ability to consider this and even structure your organization around this, is think about who are the hunters 
in your sales organization? What are the roles that you can put them in? What are the customers you can put them with that are really going to speak to that talent? And then also, who are the farmers? Who are the people that you want to put into connections and relationships that are going to uh, support customer success for many, many months and maybe even years? And if you use that distinction in your planning and in your training and maybe even in your assignments of roles and and leads, that may help you to uh, find some even more of that motivation with your team. A number of related episodes to this conversation. I mentioned earlier on that we did a two-episode series a while back on uh, the benefits of a recognition program and how to create it. That's episode 79 and 80 with Michelle Smith. Also may be helpful to some of you listening on thinking about leading a team is being mindful about what kind of team you're leading. There are four unique types of teams. Susan Gerke and I talked about that extensively on episode 138. Also from Susan Gerke is episode 192, how to create team guidelines that we mentioned earlier. I mentioned two of the experts we've had on in the past during this conversation, Simon Sinek, episode 223, and John Cotter, episode 249. On 249, we talked about the distinction between leadership and management. And of course, we talked about organizational change and innovation that Cotter's work is really focused around. Also of value to you, especially for those of you who wanted to do more on executive presence and dive in on that further, episode 272 will be useful to you. That's a conversation with Muriel Mignon Wilkins. And also episode 316, Executive Presence with Your Elevator Speech with my friend Tom Henschel. Those will both be of value to you. In relation to Paul's question on leading sales folks, episode 299 will also be helpful to Paul, how to lead top-line growth. Tim Sanders was my guest on that episode, talked about his most recent book, Deal Storming, and how today's sales teams and organizations are really approaching sales in a different way, and they're handling it as a team Gone are the days, well, I shouldn't say gone, but certainly dwindling are the days in the organizations where the lone wolf salesperson working alone in isolation is who's going to be most successful for the organization. More and more organizations are making the shift to sales as a team uh, strategy. Episode 299 talks about that in detail. Also valuable to you will be episode 349, The Path to Start Leading Your Team with John Pinheiro. Talked about that earlier. And then finally, for those of you who are looking for the framework to have great career conversations with your team at whatever stage they are, but particularly if you are starting with a new team, Episode 330 with Russ Laraway recently, the three steps to great career conversations that will be extremely useful to you. All of those past episodes are available on the coachingforleaders.com website and searchable by topic if you have your free membership established. You can establish it just by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. You can search by topic. If you don't yet have your free membership set up, it'll prompt you to do that. That'll give you access to the entire library of episodes. It'll also give you access to my own personal library with all the links and articles that I mentioned in my response to Lovelina's question as well, plus a ton more resources. And the very best way to get access to all that is just go over to coachingforleaders.com. Next week, I am glad to welcome to the show Howard H. White. He is the vice president of the Jordan brand at Nike. He's going to be teaching us the value 
of the right attitude in doing the impossible. You're going to enjoy that conversation a ton. Can't wait to bring that to you next week. Thank you this week to Spencer McMurty and 7Baseball16 here in the States for the kind reviews you both left on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to you both. If you'd like to leave a rating or review, coachingforleaders.com slash Apple is a great place to go. If you're an Overcast user and this episode was helpful, hit that little star button on the bottom of the app that helps recommend it to others in the Overcast community. Thank you if you do either. Have a fabulous week and look forward to having you back next week with my guest, H. White. Take care.